Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is Political Rewind. If my voice sounds a little unfamiliar, don't worry. You're in the right place. I'm Kevin Riley, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and I'm filling in today for my good friend Bill Nygut, who's taking a well-earned vacation. We have a special show for you today, one I'm very excited about. And so let me set it up for you this way. Lately, there's been a lot of talk by what I'd call amateur constitutional scholars. The recent United States Supreme Court ruling that overturned Roe has inspired it. Why? Because the ruling essentially puts abortion policy into the hands of each state. The debate about abortion, its roots in the right to privacy, state constitutions, including Georgia's, has led to a lot of armchair constitutional scholars speaking up. Well, on this show today, we're going to rise above all that. We actually have a panel of true experts and scholars to talk about the U.S. Constitution and the Georgia Constitution, including history, the actual words, and how Georgia's Constitution could be interpreted in some of the legal battles that are on the horizon in our state. So let's jump right into that conversation. Joining me to discuss all this, first we have Dr. James C. Cobb, a UGA professor Emeritus of History. Dr. Cobb, welcome and thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Also joining us is Professor Anthony Michael Christ of Georgia State, an expert in constitutional law among uh, many other things and a frequent visitor to the General Assembly. Uh, Dr. Christ, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. And we also have uh, Professor Fred Smith of Emory University's Law School. He, again, is an expert in constitutional law, among many other subjects, and a frequent uh, guest on this show. So, Dr. Smith, thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay. So let's, let's jump into this this way. Um, and I'm going to start with you, with you, Dr. Cobb, because we're going to visit first with uh, Georgia's Constitution and, and a little bit of its history and, and, and where we are. So let me ask you this question. Um, by my account, Georgia's constitu- has had about 12 different constitutions. It's a little bit more complicated than that, of course. But it, and it's been revised, rewritten, changed through its history. Why is that? Why has, that, has its constitution been redone so many times? Well, uh, the, you know, the, each, each constitution, of course, reflected a different circumstance. And, you know, Georgia at first had a colonial constitution when it was a, a, a British colony. Uh, and then uh, there was a, you know, once uh, independence was declared, uh, that required, of course, a, a, a more formal state constitution. Uh, after independence was secured in, in 1785, it another uh, constitution, which which uh, each each time each successive constitution is fleshing out uh, the workings of of government uh, a little bit, and uh, and so uh, uh, there the you know, 
over time, uh, the, the constitutions have arisen as and uh, the amendments. You know, Georgia's, Georgia's history is really a history of amending the Constitution as much as anything, I think, when you, when you look at Georgia, the history of Georgia politics anyway. Uh, so, uh, so the times have, uh, have, uh, have sort of dictated uh, uh, whether it's a situation where the existing Constitution can just be amended or whether uh, it, needs to be, uh, it needs to be revised. And so, uh, and, and they re- reflect you know, certain exigencies and concerns that are, uh, you know, the most powerful elements in the state uh, are focused on, like the, but the 1798 Constitution, most people don't, I think, don't realize this, but the 1798 Constitution, uh, by, by that point, you know, slavery is, 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 is really starting to expand, and uh, by way of ensuring that, that the institution was protected, the, uh, the 1798 Constitution Carried the three-fifths provision uh, uh, over from the, the from the U.S. Constitution, uh, wherein uh, enslaved peoples counted uh, as three-fifths of a regular citizen for portion, for purposes of, of apportionment. So, so what that does is it gives the slaveholding counties in Georgia uh, uh, a real advantage in representation. Uh, and in a way, it's sort of a, a variation on the uh, on the, the later county unit system in Georgia because uh, counties like Glenn County had in 1830 had 550 white residents, but they had the uh, same representation in the legislature as as uh, 3,800 uh, white residents of Madison County. Uh, so, it, but it it gave uh, about a third of Georgia's counties uh, as of 1830. Had an extra representative in the legislature uh, based on this three-fifths provision, which which means, of course, that the slave interests are, are very well represented. Uh, the uh, you know the 1861 Constitution is the, we're now part of the, uh, the Confederacy, so it was established to you know it, it's it's very much reflective of the of the Confederate Constitution. Uh, and uh, in, in, in which T.R.R. Cobb of Athens had, had a large role uh, in drawing up. Uh, and, and then in 1865, of course, the, um, you know, the end of the Civil War, the, the, uh, the, the call for the abolition, you know, the requirement that slavery be abolished, and uh, uh, that the 1865 Constitution really never actually operated because the, the state didn't uh, ratify the 14th Amendment, so it was uh, uh, the state was never admitted to the Union under the 1865 Constitution. Let me jump in there, uh, Dr. Cobb, and, and get uh, Dr. Christ into this. So, um, as Dr. Cobb mentioned, the, you know, what was going on in the state uh, really had a huge influence on when and why and how the Constitution of the state was revised. But in your in your work, Dr. Christ, which which revisions or moments in that uh, turn out to be key as we as we are living today? Well, that depends if you are an originalist or a non-originalist scholar, uh, which I am not an originalist. So I tend to think of the the current Constitution, which is the 1983 Constitution, as being the most important. But um, I think for our purposes today, the constitutional provisions that we're talking about. Um, you know, the, the key moments are 1861, 1865, 1868. 
Um, these are the versions of the state constitution that first adopt a declaration of rights, which includes a liberty protection. So in other words, there's this idea that government has some obligation to protect uh, certain liberty interests. And one of those liberty interests, and I think we'll get into this more later on, uh, that the Georgia Supreme Court has identified is a right to privacy. And that's that's really what we're talking about when it comes to to things like abortion rights, is this idea of a right to privacy among among others. Um, and so to me, so, you know, we, we have these key moments, uh, first being 1861 when the, the, the due process liberty guarantee right is first introduced. It's expanded in, in 1865. It is reaffirmed in 1868. And that's essentially the provision that we still have in the Constitution as voters in the state of Georgia reaffirmed it uh, in a vote in November of 1982. So, so we've had a, a lot of, um, I think, you know, certainly we've had a lot of constitutions, but the constitutional provisions that we are talking about in terms of abortion rights, privacy rights, and other related rights, um, you know, are are very much are grounded in this idea of a of a right to uh, be be free from um, liberty. You know, or un, I should say impermissibly um, overreaching uh, actions by the state on on individuals' liberty interests. So that's. That's where I kind of come come at this question. Um, well, an interesting, uh, uh, an ironic kind of pairing there is, of course, with the the, the 1868 Constitution, uh, you know, is is really close to radical reconstruction being actually a, effective in Georgia as it's going to get. But it, but at the same time, it uh, introduces the poll tax, reintroduces the poll tax. The uh, the uh, uh, it, it then the 1877 Constitution, which of course is much it's a reaction back to the right to conservative, you know, kind of restore the state rights and all that business. It makes the poll tax cumulative. So that uh, my point is is the Constitution has also been the source of you know where we normally think of an evolving document like a Constitution as getting more modern and and you know extending rights and and what have you but uh uh the 1877 constitution makes poll tax cumulative which makes it much much more burdensome for uh, uh you know for poor people who uh, you know the poorest 20 percent of georgia's population in the late 19th century was probably making less than 35 dollars a year so you know you're paying two dollars to vote or one dollar to vote is it was a big decision so they, the Constitution has been the instrument of of, uh, of voter suppression, and and then as you know the the 1908 amendment arising out of the 1906 uh, gubernatorial campaign that that uh, on top of the of the poll tax that added in the literacy test, um, uh, you know, just further goes to guarantee that that uh, very very few black people will be voting uh, in the state of Georgia. So let me let me let me get Fred. Let me get you into the conversation here, Fred. So, yeah, big picture. Um, first, a couple questions, and take them take them as you want. But um, why would why do states even need their own constitution? And then what is what is a state's constitution's relationship to the U.S. Constitution? I know, kind of big, complicated questions, but take it on. <laughs> sure. <clears throat> well, for starters, right, the federal constitution gives uh, the federal executive, the federal legislature, and the judiciary 
Uh, it gives them the authority to act. Um, it doesn't really give states the authority to act because states already had the authority to act when they joined the union, right? So the way that we tend to think about um, the federal constitution is that it was a collection of states um, that were already sovereign um, that came together uh, in this national pact. Uh, and according to the federal constitution, um, the rights or sorry, authority that is not given to the federal constitution is retained by the states, right? And so the state constitutions then for that reason are, um, are very important. Um, and it's also important to note, and kind of going back to you know, Anthony's point about rights, um, you know, before the passage of the 14th Amendment, uh, the state constitution would have been the only source uh, of, uh, of freedom from government intrusion from the state. Let me right, let me so, let me interrupt you, Fred, and I apologize. Sure. The 14th Amendment, exactly what amendment is that exactly what did it accomplish, just just for the sake of our listeners? Sure. So the 14th Amendment was ratified in uh, 1868, or that's when it came a part of the, 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 United, the federal constitution. And it contains the Equal Protection Clause. Um, and uh, it's also understood to protect fundamental rights uh, because it has a due process clause. Um, and so before that, um, let's say the state of Georgia or any other state, let's say that they said, you know, you're not allowed to say anything bad against the government, for example. Um, today, that would be unconstitutional under the federal constitution. But the only reason for that is because of the 14th Amendment. Um, before, the, before the passage of the 14th Amendment, uh, freedom from intrusion from state government came from state constitutions. Right. And so uh, and so they've played a particularly important role uh, in the history of the nation. So um, let me let me ask you this one, Dr. Christ. I, if you were to pick something in the Georgia Constitution that maybe people aren't as aware of, or is is uh, you know not uh, necessarily well understood, or sets Georgia apart, what what would what would you pick? Is there is there such a thing? Well, uh, there's a few things I'd pick, but I, I think the thing that's on top of everyone's mind, and certainly mine, has been the extensive right to privacy that has been embedded in the Georgia constitutional tradition. Um, Georgia, for 117 years now, has had the longest-running recognized right to privacy uh, that dates back to a case called Pavisich, which the, the Georgia Supreme Court said that there's this basic fundamental constitutional right uh, to, to what they said to, to kind of shield yourself from the public gaze. Um, and that's a, a principle that a lot of folks, I think, are just kind of naturally familiar with, and it's certainly something that's been part of the, the federal constitutional tradition, although somewhat pared back, or I should say significantly pared back by some of the recent abortion decisions. Um, but it's a, it's a tradition that has been much more robust and expansive in Georgia than it has been elsewhere. And that includes, you know, the, the right to privacy includes a bundle of rights. So it's in Georgia constitutional law, it has been the right to choose a, a same-sex intimate partner the right to refuse medical care, the right to die, the right to, to order your family as you see fit um, and, and to raise your children as you see fit. And the, and the Georgia uh, state constitution protects all these things in a way um, that is you know, equally as protective as the federal constitution, often more protective than the federal constitution. And sometimes uh, Georgia courts have been ahead of the curve. And so they have recognized rights that the U.S. Supreme Court has later recognized as a federal constitutional right but we've done so here in Georgia first. So I think that's probably the, the most distinctive feature, which is 
maybe not distinctive in terms of the actual text, but the way in which we have interpreted and implemented and constructed the text over time has been unique to Georgia. Uh, thank you, Dr. Christ. Here's what we're going to do, because you've sort of naturally led us into the next segment of the show. So I'm going to get our first break in here, and then we're going to get to deeper into some of this, Georgia. And we have another guest who's joined us that you know, I'm really looking forward to adding to the conversation. So uh, when we come back, we'll dig further into that Georgia Constitution and how it might uh, affect certain rights and future debates about them. You're listening to Political Rewind on Georgia Public Broadcasting. Back after this. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back to Political Rewind. I'm Kevin Riley, editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, filling in for Bill Nygut today. Now, when we come back from our break, we always try to remind people of our panel, but we've got a little twist here today. So I'm going to start with uh, Amy Steigerwalt has joined our panel. Uh, Amy from Georgia State. Thanks for being here, Amy. Um, I'm told that uh, you, you, you were able to get your kids to school, and thanks for joining us as we talk about Georgia's Constitution, the U.S. Constitution, and these other issues. Thanks for having me. I've, it turns out I can discuss all of this as well as uh, drive children to middle school and the bus doesn't show. So I'm, I'm on top of things this morning, mostly. Okay. Well, we're glad you're a, a caring parent that just didn't call an Uber. <laughs> so I, uh, thank you for that. But also with us is James C. Cobb, a UGA professor emeritus of history, Professor Anthony Michael Christ, also of Georgia State, and then uh, Professor Fred Smith of Emory University's Law School. We are talking about constitutions, both the U.S. Constitution and Georgia's Constitution. So uh, some on the abortion rights side of the debate, and we got into this a little bit before the break, believe Georgia's Constitution offers them a really good chance to establish those rights in Georgia because of the language that our Constitution contains on privacy. So before we dive deeper into that, Fred Smith, can you explain the right to privacy uh, from whence it comes, how the U.S. Supreme Court's rulings have turned and changed on that, and why Roe was eventually reversed? So, I, I mean, I'm asking you to basically, uh, in a few seconds, describe what might be a whole course you would have to teach, but take it away. <laughs> sure. Well, I think Anthony has described well the state right to privacy and its origins. Uh, the federal right to privacy um, would Kind of came a little bit later in the 1920s. Um, there's a case uh, out of Oregon where the state of Oregon was prohibiting parents from sending their kids to private school. Um, and uh, the Supreme Court said that's unconstitutional because you're interfering um, with, uh, with decisions about how to raise one's children, and that violates the right to privacy. Um, they use the language that there's a basic right to be let alone. Uh, and that's uh, the first United States Supreme Court identifying a right to privacy in the federal constitution. Um, in a few decades later, in the 1960s, you have another set of cases about uh, birth control. Uh, there was a law in Connecticut that criminalized uh, when doctors told 
their patients about birth control. Uh, and uh, the Supreme Court said that also violates the right to privacy. Uh, in the 1970s, um, there's Roe, uh, which uh, I know that at this point listeners are very familiar with. Um, there's also a case the year after Roe um, that's about the right uh, to have a child as well, where um, a lot of, at the time, a lot of uh, public employers would force women to take unpaid leaves of absences um, during about the fifth month of their pregnancy, um, and including public employers. And the, and the Supreme Court said you're punishing people for exercising one of their most important rights, their right to decide whether to have a child. Um, and you're punishing people for deciding to have a child. So the very right that was at issue at Roe was at issue there too. Um, and uh, over time, uh, the right to privacy has also uh, included the right to, uh, to sexual intimacy and the privacy of uh, one's home. Uh, and, and so it, 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 and also most recently in Obergefell um, protects the right to uh, decide to have a same-sex marital partner. Um, and so uh, there's a lot embedded in it. It's a very long uh, tradition. And what the overturning of Roe does uh, is it raises questions about what else is up for grabs in this moment, right? So uh, because Roe is kind of, it's connected to this broader constitutional tradition, um, and uh, and in the uh, the opinion overturning Roe in Dobbs, there's uh, a concurring opinion um, where Justice Thomas does not only raise questions about Roe but he taps into this broader tradition, this broader right to privacy that protects all the rights that I just described. Um, and, and so it's hard to know exactly where the court stands on this so, at this point. So, Fred, we're going to get into what uh, Judge Thomas uh, had to say in a, in, in, in a little bit later in the show. OK, so keep that stuff in mind. But, Amy, you study the judiciary, right? And um, Fred has just described the evolution, you know, of the right to privacy more or less. But judicial thinking appears to have changed. I mean, you even hear now, like, the main thing is unless because abortion isn't explicitly stated in the Constitution, therefore there is no right. I mean, what do, what do your studies of the judiciary tell you about the evolution of this? Well, in part, this is a difficult question to ask a political scientist because we very fundamentally believe that judges are political actors. And so we need to understand that when judges make decisions that their personal preferences are going to come into those decisions. Now, there's ways in which they can be constrained by the law, by the text of the Constitution. But the reality is the U.S. Constitution in particular is a very short and vaguely written document. And so a lot of the provisions, there's a lot of wiggle room to figure out what does it mean, right? What does it mean to say equal protection under the laws? What does it also mean to say, for example, in the Ninth Amendment, that just because something isn't written in the Constitution, it's still left to the people and there might be other rights that aren't there, right? Where do we go on all of these? And so part of what has been difficult over time is that, yes, thinking has changed among judges um, as the world has changed, as societal norms have changed, and also as the things that we sort of think about and where it goes. And what becomes difficult, especially in understanding the Dobbs decision, is that the court focuses a lot on is the word abortion in the Constitution? No, it is not. 
But there's a lot of rights that this, those same justices have also written opinions saying that they uh, feel are protected by the Constitution that also aren't written in the Constitution. For example, the right to association is not written in the Constitution. The right to travel is not written in the Constitution. The right to uh, have control over your child's upbringing and make decisions for them not in the Constitution, uh, the right to vote in many ways, right? It, it kind of is there, but not precisely. It, it sort of it shows up in very specific places, but not more broadly overall. And so because of that, it is this problem that there's a lot of wiggle room. And so as we see um, changing members of the judiciary, as the composition changes, as social norms change, we see changes in the decisions. And so it makes it difficult to simply say the Constitution says X and therefore the law is X because the law is a reflection of those interpreting the Constitution. Uh, I, yeah, I just want to, I'm, I'm always most curious about areas where I have no expertise, but uh, the, uh, uh, the, the actual Georgia Constitution, is, as I read it, doesn't, re, doesn't really refer to the right of privacy. It refers to the right to be let alone uh, in behavior so long as you don't, uh, your behavior doesn't harm someone else. And uh, it seems to me a lot of the argument here is, is really based, uh, is derived from the, the Georgia Supreme Court ruling in 1903, where the judge sort of <laughs> just took off on, uh, you know, he, 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 he basically, uh, by my reading, he grounded the, the right to privacy more in natural law than than as, as it was expressed in the Constitution. Uh, and, uh, but, but, Beside that point, uh, since Georgia now recognizes, uh, as I understand it, the uh, 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 personhood of uh, a fetus once the heartbeat is there, uh, I'm just kind of curious why you know, the argument couldn't be mounted. Well, you know, you're you're harming, uh, you are you're by, you know leaving you alone in this case leads to behavior that will harm another person. Doctor Christ, you want to take a stab at that one? So <clears throat> this is maybe where we, we should get into a slight discussion about the history of abortion law in Georgia and the meaning of what personhood has historically meant as a matter of Georgia law. Um, Georgia followed for, for many, 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 many years the common law principle uh, that applied to abortion. And common law is essentially judge-made law. We, we got it from England, and it's, um, you know, fo folks might be familiar with it in terms of, of contract law or tort law. But in, in this context, the common law governed um, Georgia's abortion regulation, for lack of a better term. Um, until 1876, abortion was not unlawful, per se, in Georgia. Uh, basically, there is this point in time in pregnancy, around 15 weeks, uh, that the common law recognized called quickening, where uh, essentially you, uh, a, a mother could fe feel uh, fetal movement stirring. And until this point in time, there, having an abortion was not unlawful. Um, it was only in 1876 that Georgia prohibited all forms of abortion with very narrow exceptions for the life of the mother. Um, why is that important? Well, it's important because if you are an originalist judge, as many of the Georgia Supreme Court justices are, um, you would want to ask, well, what was the state of the law when the Georgia Constitution first adopted the liberty rights that the right to privacy is based out of? And right, this is the, that 1861, 1865, 1868 
critical period. And at this point in time, Georgia, right, that the average Georgian, presumably, um, and especially the George, average Georgian lawmaker, would have not viewed a an embryo as having a distinct and separate legal status different from the mother's. Um, and so, you know, only until that 15-week period or so would Georgia law um, at that critical period recognize um, an embryo or a fetus as having some kind of distinct legal right of, of their own. And so if you're trying to take this originalist approach to understand um, what, what the meaning of a person was originally under the Georgia Constitution or what the, the right to privacy meant, um, in terms of reproductive choices, uh, this is a really critical period of time. Um, and, and so there's a real question there of whether the General Assembly can, by statute, um, redefine person in a way that nobody ever would have thought to define person um, at this, that these critical periods of time in Georgia constitutional change. And, of course, the other critical period being uh, the current Georgia Constitution, which was, again, adopted uh, in 1982 and went into effect in 1983, you know, did the average Georgian uh, at that point in time think uh, that at conception that, you know, uh, you know, there was a person uh, that had all the same rights as everybody else? I, I don't I don't think that that's a plausible case, but that's a, that's the question that that judges in our state courts are going to have to ask now. Dr. Cobb, you, you said something I just wanted to come back to for a moment that in 1903, a Georgia, I guess, Supreme Court judge uh, went off, I think is the word you use, on the right to be left alone. Just explain that context a little bit, because I think your, your point is that this right to privacy question, you know, has, has some roots in that. And, and what that, you know, from a historical perspective, what that meant and, and its significance at that moment in time. Well, uh, you know, first of all, you know, the, uh, everybody on, on the panel has more expertise on this particular topic, uh, uh, broadly speaking, for sure, than I do. But, I mean, I read the opinion, which uh, which took about half a day, but it, um, you know, basically uh, it, it was a sort of an exaltation uh, uh, or celebration of the right to privacy or the right to be let alone um, that, 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 you know, it, I, I was struck by how little uh, I saw in it that really related back to, to the Georgia Constitution. Uh, itself in the in the opinion, and I, I I read somebody's commentary somewhere where he said this was sort of a, a, a judicially created uh, uh, right, uh, you know that that it, so much was grounded in the 1903, uh, uh, so much of the argument for for, uh, for uh, abortion uh, regulating abortion would would violate the protection of privacy uh, that was it was based on a, a judge's opinion more than than the substance of the of the Constitution so that that was just what I was saying and and I didn't uh, professor uh, I'm grateful to professor Christ for pointing out the original intent question which I hadn't really uh, uh, considered in terms of you know what constitutes personhood uh, at, at any one time in our history but uh, so it, it was uh, I just saw the opinion as sort of an exaltation of, of the right to privacy uh, in, in many ways, as much as it is it related, I mean, the original case, of course, was was about a guy whose photograph was used in an insurance ad, uh, you know, and and they agreed that his privacy had been, you know, because he was he was used this as both as the the guy who did get insurance as opposed to the one who didn't, and uh, uh, but but that was that that ruling it was based on his likeness, 
uh, as opposed to, to you know, his, his conduct, his private conduct. So, Amy, uh, Dr. Kreutz made a reference a little bit to the makeup of uh, at least the Supreme Court, but a little bit about the Georgia judiciary. I mean, what is your, again, in your study of stuff, what's your general impression of where judges stand philosophically in the state, especially those who might affect an abortion decision? Um, so in the state of Georgia, right, most of the uh, Supreme Court currently are Republican appointees because we've had Republican governors uh, more recently. That said, due to the line of cases that have existed and the sort of doctrine of stare decisis, which means basically let it stand, that if a court has ruled one way that it needs to take a lot before they're going to change it, you have the fact that at least interpretations of the Georgia Constitution, including by the current court, um, do still uh, reaffirm this right to privacy that was established back in 1903 by the Georgia Supreme Court. And they've really sort of extended in a couple of different ways. So, for example, um, when they, um, you know, and it, and it goes sort of in different ways when it comes to this right to privacy. So they've also uh, tapped into that to say, for example, that you can't be compelled to produce evidence against yourself, such as uh, the implied consent, um, and have really been concerned about sort of both uh, sort of compelling people to act. There's also been other cases that this court um, has handed down recently that are looking, um, for example, at um, whether or not uh, evidence can be collected against you uh, without a warrant, and they have gone farther uh, than we have seen in some other places, such as with sort of vehicle uh, privacy data and things like that, that without a warrant, they're not able to collect it. And so all of that really comes into it, but also this idea that um, again, dating back to the 1903 case, that there are a sort of individual right to privacy that you hold on to. And so the court has not shown really a willingness in recent years to step very far away from that. And so in part, they would have to overturn uh, those prior decisions that they have handed down in order to um, say that there is not a right to privacy in the Georgia Supreme Court that would go into this case. And so that would be, I mean, the, the, the question is going to be, we have seen a couple of new judges or justices uh, join the Georgia Supreme Court uh, recently. We've also uh, recently, uh, the uh, Chief Justice stepped down. We have a new Chief Justice. We have a couple of new justices, and so they haven't necessarily had to handle cases on this. So it could be, right? That's what we saw on the U.S. Supreme Court is that it was a pretty abrupt change as we saw a change, um, right, as the new Trump justices came on to the court that was enough to sort of shift the balance of power. And so that is one of the questions that we have is that some of these justices that are on the court currently have not yet been asked these same questions. They haven't been asked to revisit uh, these decisions. So, for example, former uh, Chief Justice uh, Namias, who just stepped down over the summer, um, he was the author of some of these more recent opinions. And so he, he has now been Right, right. His seat has now been replaced. Um, and so that's going to be, I guess, where the question comes in. But if we're going back again to the concept of stare decisis and where the law currently stands in the state of Georgia, it does continue to uh, – the Supreme Court has continually said that there is this individual right to privacy that is recognized that does go farther than even that that was sort of seen in the U.S. Constitution. 
Thanks for that, Amy. So, Fred, I'm going to come to you with the question and then uh, ask others to weigh in if they want, in particular, uh, Dr. Christ. But if abortion rights advocates want to make the case in Georgia for that right, what is the argument they must make or what would be the course they are likely to take based on this discussion of Georgia's Constitution, Roe, and everything else that's going on? Well, the good thing is we don't have to speculate because there's a, com- <laughs> there's a, a complaint that's been filed uh, by the ACLU and, and by Bondurant Mixon and Elmore uh, on behalf of Sister Song, um, which is a reproductive justice organization, um, among others. Um, and uh, there's two uh, arguments that are made uh, in that complaint. Um, so one is based on the right to privacy, right? So it's uh, based on case law in particular um, that asserts that the Georgia right to privacy is more extensive than the uh, than the federal right to privacy. Um, and so in cases like Powell versus State, uh, you see this kind of emphatically made. Um, and so, you know, we've heard- Let me, let me, context, let me slow you yeah. down there. Powell yeah. versus State. Just explain that case for a moment. I'm sorry to interrupt. Sure. Yeah. No, and that's fair. I mean, <laughs> most, most constitutional law <laughs> folks don't know what Powell versus State is. Uh, but uh, Powell versus State is a 1998 uh, case uh, that was about a Georgia law that prohibited um, sodomy. So it prohibited- um, Sexual uh, sexual conduct other, other than um, vaginal intercourse um, of all types, and the Georgia Supreme Court said that that law was uh, unconstitutional under the state constitution because it violated the state right to privacy. And they did that years before um, the United States Supreme Court um, recognized that same dimension of the right to privacy in the federal constitution. And that case was six to one. Um, although, as we've heard. And it's a very different court than it was in 1998, and it's even a very different court than it was in 2017, right? So, uh, so even if, if one were to read a 2017 case for uh, for where the Georgia uh, Supreme Court is, it wouldn't tell you very much because almost uh, because most of the members have joined um, after that, um, and it's actually a significantly more diverse court than it was say in 2017. Um, and, but but that's but that's the first theory. The first theory is right to privacy. The second theory is. Uh, that uh, under the, the plain language of the Georgia Constitution, if an, a legislative enactment is void at the time that it's enacted, then it then uh, it's it, it's null, uh, right? So if it's unconstitutional, rather at the time that it's enacted, then it's void. Uh, it's the best way to put that. Um, and so uh, one of the arguments that they're making is, well, look, you know, if this law were passed today, that would be one thing, right? Because uh, under the most recent Supreme Court uh, opinion on this, um, one could pass a six-week abortion ban. However, uh, at the time that this law was passed in 2019, it was unconstitutional. uh, And so uh, for that reason, it's void. Um, And I have to imagine that that argument, there's some judges for whom that argument is going to be more attractive than the first argument in part because of the very firm textual hook, uh, but also because it still leaves it up to the legislature to revisit this. This is a law that passed by one vote. Uh, and uh, and in a circumstance in which Roe was the law of the land, right? Um, and so it gives the legislature the opportunity to still do that again, if that's really what it means to do or meant to do, um, uh, while, uh, while also 
um, invalidating this particular uh, provision um, that uh, almost no one thought would ever uh, actually go into effect. So I'm, I'm glad that Fred brought up void ab initio, which is that big Latin clunky term for the thing that Fred just beautifully explained. Um, and it's just so it, it's to me it's a it's a it's a very unique aspect to Georgia constitutional the Georgia constitutional tradition, and I I agree with Fred that I think that that's probably one argument that judges are going to find more attractive because they don't really have to dig into the merits. But in terms of the right to privacy, I think the real question is uh, a matter of where the line gets drawn, and that's always been the very difficult question for all these reproduction reproductive rights abortion rights cases is where do you draw the line? Um, you know, do you advocate that that uh, the, the 2019 abortion ban gets thrown out and then under the right to privacy and then the General Assembly gets another stab at it and we'll see if that that uh, meets constitutional muster or do we find some kind of originalist grounded rule? Um, so I, I think that you know, the alternative to just throwing it back to the General Assembly might be saying something like, well, 15 weeks was the standard at the time of the original adoption of the Georgia Constitution's privacy right that's embedded in that due process liberty uh, guarantee. And so that's the rule that we should we should now have, which, by the way, a 15 week abortion rule um, is, is certainly not something that abortion rights advocates would have ever have wanted. Um, but it's also the one that Chief Justice Roberts would have been very comfortable with. And I think, um, you know, if you look at the composition and the ideological leanings of the Georgia Supreme Court, you might think to yourself, hey, if that works for Chief Justice Roberts, maybe that's the maybe that's the line that we ask them to draw. So, um, you know, I, I think it's really going to be quite um, it's it's hard to predict what arguments will will stick with what judges or what justices when it gets the stuff gets appealed eventually. Um, but it, it'll it'll really be, I think, both a question of whether the justices want to touch the substantive elements of, of the case. Um, and if they do go down that road and they want to find a right to privacy that, that's been violated, what kind of lines do they draw from that? Okay, thanks for that, Dr. Kreuz. You get kind of the last word um, because we're going to have to get another break in here. So it's time for our last break. When we come back, we're going to talk about some of the other issues where the Georgia Constitution could come into play. This is Political Rewind on GPB. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Rewind. I'm Kevin Riley filling in today for Bill Nygut. With me are Professor Amy Steigerwald, Professor Emeritus James C. Cobb, Professor Anthony Michael Kreiss, and Professor Fred Smith. So when the Supreme Court issued its ruling overturning Roe, Justice Thomas hinted, and that might be a mild way of saying it, hinted that the court may take up some other cases that he saw as similar. Um, I'm going to start with you, Fred. Tell us what he said, why he said it, what cases are involved, and a glimpse at his reasoning. All right. So the majority opinion very much focused on what it called the right to abortion, right? But the right to abortion, as noted, is connected really to this broader right to privacy, sometimes described as a right to be let alone, um, which includes the decision about whether or not to um, to bear children. And uh, and that is connected with this broader idea that 
uh, this rooted in the Ninth, Ninth Amendment of the Constitution, that the mere fact that a right isn't expressly enumerated in the Constitution doesn't mean that the people don't retain said right. Um, and uh, this concurring opinion went after that idea in some respects uh, by raising qu and this, this idea has been come to, it's come to be known as substantive due process. And, and it's this idea that there are some rights um, that the legislature uh, can generally not touch, at least without a very, very good reason. Um, and uh, he raised questions about this, this very idea of substantive due process, and he cited to specific cases um, that are in this tradition that he thinks is concerning. Uh, and among the first was, a, was the Connecticut case that I mentioned, um, where, uh, where it was a crime for doctors to tell um, patients about birth control in the 1960s. Um, the second case uh, that uh, he cited was Lawrence versus Texas, um, which was a case that banned same-sex uh, sexual intimacy. Uh, and the, the Supreme Court said that that law from out of Texas was unconstitutional, and he cited to that case. And then the third case was Obergefell, uh, which uh, was the case that, of course, that recognized um, same-sex marriage and said that um, that under the Equal Protection Clause, one can't discriminate on the, uh, against uh, people based on, on the gender of the person they choose to marry, and also that that's embedded in the right to privacy. Um, so <clears throat> by citing, by, by expressly mentioning those three cases that way, um, which are three cases that a lot of people are, have a lot of concerns about where they stand today, uh, it, it kind of, I mean, already we would be asking about those three cases, um, but for him to actually expressly to those three cases of cases of concern, um, especially at a time where across the country there are legislators who are proposing legislation to restrict birth control in particular, um, or a right like same-sex marriage where it really only takes one recalcitrant uh, county clerk, as we learned in Kentucky uh, a few years ago. Um, it, you know, people are, already would have anxiety about these sorts of things, but he expressly um, cited to those three cases of cases of concern. So I'm going to come to you first, Amy, uh, about the, you know, again, a little bit of the mood of and uh, thinking of Georgia judges and its implications. And then to you, Dr. Christ, about um, what this could really mean uh, from where you sit. So, Amy, um, you think that the based on your study of what's going on in Georgia's judiciary, that Justice Thomas sort of represents thinking that would exist in Georgia or, you know, you talked earlier about about some of this and the traditions in Georgia? So I think there's two things that are important. So first, Justice Thomas's concurrence was not the opinion of the court. And I think it is sort of notable that he didn't get, right, that the other, many of the other justices, even in the majority, didn't sign on uh, to his opinion. Instead, they, in fact, uh, for example, Justice Kavanaugh wrote to basically say the opposite. No, no, no. This is solely about abortion. We're not discussing anything else. Uh, the decision itself uh, sort of takes pains to do that now. The problem is, right, as Fred very nicely laid out, is it is very difficult to disconnect all of this from each other. And so if the argument is that it's not in there whatsoever, and that that fundamental idea is not protected, then these other things fall as well, including right other decisions such as 
Loving v. Virginia, which uh, was one that said that bans against, for example, interracial marriage uh, were not allowed in other places in there, the right to travel, uh, the right to raise your children, right? All of these things are part and parcel of that. Again, what makes Georgia distinct is its own separate constitutional history and understanding of what protections come under the state constitution. Um, so there is a view which is called the independent and adequate state grounds. And that means that if Supreme Court justices of a state can make a decision about a law that only cites their state constitution, then that prevails, right? It doesn't really matter what's been said at the federal level. And so what we see are state constitutions are, number one, much more detailed. And they very commonly protect way more rights than the U.S. Constitution does. They go much further. And they have that ability, right? They can, so it's sort of the, the floor is really the U.S. Constitution, but the state constitutions can go farther. And we have, again, this long, detailed history right, back to the Pavisich case, then to the Powell case, right, then to other ones where the Georgia Supreme Court has really sort of been out in front and has said, no, we have a much more robust, given what is written in our state constitution, within our history, within our laws and our doctrine, that we're going to look to. And so in many ways, those are the arguments that they're going to be looking to, not the ones that are being given by the U.S. Constitution and by the U.S because those are honestly irrelevant to the question of does the Georgia Constitution allow this law to go forward or not, right? They don't actually, in many ways, even have to care what was said by the U.S. Supreme Court because it actually doesn't affect their decision. Instead, they're going to be looking, um, as Fred said, at number one, the provision which says the legislature isn't allowed to pass laws that are unconstitutional. When they passed it, they did know it was unconstitutional, and so that's sort of one level of this. But then second, this long lines of cases that are about the right to privacy that come under the Georgia Constitution and for which the sort of claims, for example, that Thomas was making are really irrelevant to the decisions that are being made by the Georgia Supreme Court justices. I think that is important, right? They don't care as they are deciding this what the U.S. Supreme Court has said. They only care about what other justices in previous cases have said and what the Georgia Constitution said. So, Dr. Christ, I mean, let's get just get down to, and we don't have much time left, the, the real implication of something like same-sex marriage. I mean, is, is people who are worried about that, as, as Fred mentioned. In Georgia, if the Supreme Court gets interested in that, what, what does it mean in Georgia? Well, I, I think the, the way we need to think about all these rights is as a, a like a bundle of sticks. And if you remove one of the sticks from that bundle, the rest becomes quite a little bit looser. I don't think these things are in imminent peril. Um, are they less safe and less secure than they were a few months ago? I think so. But I but I don't think that there's any imminent threat. There's no real social movement to undo some of these other rights as we've seen in in, in the in the abortion context. So um, I think folks should be on guard if they're concerned about this. People need to be aware, but I do think that there is, you know, there's, there's not quite the imminent threat threat that uh, that we've seen, or that some other people might think that that there is. So, Dr. Christ, you get the time, the final word today with a coveted position on this show. So, thank thank you for that. Uh, that's all the time we have for political rewind today. I'd like to thank our guests, Amy Steigerwald, James C. Cobb, Anthony Michael Christ, and Fred Smith. 
And a special thanks to our producer, Chase McGee, who put an awful lot of time into this show and is really the reason that we had such a great conversation and had so much uh, background, and, and he recruited these fantastic guests. Also, thanks to senior producer Natalie Mendenhall uh, for her help, and Victoria, our engineer, thank you. I'm Kevin Riley. Thanks for joining us, and have a great rest of your day. <laughs>